Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 230 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about how to differentiate yourself from the crowd. So I guess the first question is, what does it mean to differentiate yourself? And the second question would be, why? And in our second hour, we'll tackle other questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jonathan suggested this topic. So, Jonathan, why don't you take a stab at that question? Sure. Sure, thanks. Uh, I've been emailing my list about this a lot lately, which is what made, it's been on the forefront of my mind. And my basic thesis is that if your customers or your prospects, I should say, can't really tell the difference between you and other people who, in their opinion, do the same thing, then you only have one way to differentiate yourself, and that's by being the cheapest. And I am sure, I'm confident that people listening to this have felt this pressure to be the low price option, the Walmart option. And it makes sense. Like if the customer can't tell the difference between jar of peanut butter A and jar of peanut butter B, and the only things that the two peanut butter companies are doing to, you know, say how great they are, don't make any sense to the person reading the label. You know, maybe that's like, we've got these unpronounceable chemical ingredients and like, well, we've got these unpronounceable chemical ingredients. They're just going to pick the cheapest one. And I feel like a lot of freelancers talk about their unpronounceable ingredients instead of talking about things that are meaningful to their ideal buyers. And therefore, the customer has no choice but to pick the cheapest option because that's what that's most likely what you're going to do. Like, well, I can't tell the difference between these two peanut butters. I might as well get the cheaper one. So I, I've been going on a little bit of a rant. I mean, this is totally Philip's space, but I've been going on a rant about it lately. And I sent out an email that had 18 different examples of differentiation because I feel like you need to have, I feel like it helps get the gears turning when you're trying to deal with something new, you're trying to learn something new and it doesn't make any sense to you. And you're thinking, well, you know, I don't really know what's different about me. So anyway, so I thought we could kind of start there, maybe talk about some different examples of differentiation and perhaps help people identify what is unique about them that they could then present to their customers and say, you know, when the customer says, you're the most expensive option, why should we hire you? And, you know, perhaps there's an answer to that question. If you think about it, you, you might be able to answer that question say, well, you should hire me, even though I'm the most expensive, because an insert thing that they care about. And I assume, I mean, because I've gotten that question over the years, not a huge number of times, but certainly like, so as the years went on and I raised my rates more and more, and people would say, sort of fall off their chairs, what, you charge that much? Uh, like, and the implicit part of that is then, why should we go with you? And my answer, I think was pretty lacking which was, well, I've been doing this a long time, and so like I really know what I'm doing. And sometimes that worked, but not a lot of times. A lot of times it was just like, well, no, what we really like, we're still gonna go with the cheapest option. What you're really saying there, which maybe, oh, maybe some of them interpreted, and maybe some of them connected the dots, is that you're less risky. And there's, a, there's probably a better way to articulate it, but that's probably the way, the ones who, decided to hire you, that's probably how they took it. So mm -hmm. you could you could have been more explicit about that though, and perhaps even given examples or a guarantee or something like that to kind of amplify the fact that you're a less risky option than your cheaper competitors. 
Uh, fun fact, the Wikipedia term for <laughs> what we're talking about is fungibility. So fungibility is a property of a good or commodity whose individual units are capable of mutual substitution. And that, that's really the idea here, right? Basically, you don't want to be a commodity. You don't want to be replaceable by someone else, which so often happens, especially in the tech world. Oh, well, I need to hire a programmer. So I will just hire a programmer. And if it doesn't work out, I will hire another programmer. And so I guess part of the whole point of distinguishing yourself, differentiation, is they won't even think about doing that because it's preposterous to think that that would make any, make any sense. You know, there, I guess a sort of a, a sideline, but there's an interesting paradox that one of the ways that you'll see software developers attempt to differentiate themselves is they'll say, well, we actually care about documenting our code. And, <laughs> and no one cares about documenting your code. <laughs> One of the reasons you would do that is so you could be easily be replaced if you left the project. That's not the only reason to do it, I know, but there's a kind of weird paradox in there. You know, I would say that sometimes to people. I would sometimes say, like, you know, we really think we're great. We're going to satisfy you. But, like, we write code that someone else could uh, take over as necessary. Yeah, no lock-in. That's valuable to say that there's no lock-in with me. Phrasing is so much better than I ever came up with. Yeah. <laughs> Because I hire people. So it's like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I get it from the other side. Well, I, I think that's the first big key point that would be, you know, takeaway number one from this is it has to matter from your client's perspective. It has to matter to them from their perspective. Anything you attempt to use to differentiate yourself, it just has to matter to them. And that that sweeps off the table fully half of the ways that I've seen people try to differentiate themselves because, you know, as practitioners or technicians, we think things like code quality are super important and to be sure they are, but they may not be as, as important to you, the practitioner, as they are to the client or the client may have 10 things that are more important than that. And I guess that's the first big takeaway, right? Is it's got to matter to the client from their perspective. Otherwise, it's not a very helpful differentiator. It's not going to do you much good. Yeah, it's an unpronounceable chemical. It's like, does, I, I don't know what that, that is, question. you know. Does, does that mean then that you might have different differentiation uh, for different clients? Do you have to listen to them first to know how to differentiate yourself? I think so. And that's one thing I was going to say about your earlier uh, example, Reuven, is that, you know, saying that you lower risk might absolutely be true, but if you don't cast that into a specific example that resonates with a particular client, then that's just an abstract term that you're throwing around. In other words, that's a claim that you're not really backing up with specific proof. And the first step to, to do that is not to do it individually for each specific client, because when you're trying to market yourself at scale, so you get tons of leads coming in, that's just not scalable. Uh, the first thing you do is make all of your examples about how you're different pertinent to the terminology of a specific type of client, like a specific market vertical. So you're like, okay, I'm going to sell my services to uh, just big enterprise companies that need training. That enables you to make your language start resonating with them more than just saying things like, well, I reduce risk or I'm really fast or I care about code quality. You can start to create examples that are specific to their world. So that's the first step. But I think ultimately when that starts to translate into a sales conversation, 
if you're taking the approach that Jonathan's constantly advocating of trying to talk them out of hiring you and asking a lot of uh, really deep, uh, sometimes uncomfortable questions, you'll get those, that info you need to customize your, your pitch. It's not really a pitch, but you know what I mean. You'll customize how you talk specifically to their specific needs. Am I right about that, Jonathan, or am I just? Yeah, no, you're totally you know? on. So there's, there's really, there's your marketing, which is going to attract people to you. And then there's doing a custom proposal. And when you're attracting people to you, you need to take that first approach that you just described where you, or, or certainly it makes it a lot easier to attract people to you. If you go ahead and pick an ideal buyer, not, not necessarily even just a vertical market, like real estate agents, you specifically pick people who manage properties with over a hundred units or, you know, 10,000 square feet minimum under management. And you can get really specific. If you know that market for some reason, you can get really specific with your marketing materials to attract people to you who your language will resonate with. Uh, and yes, it will probably turn away people who only have a thousand square feet under management, but that's probably good because perhaps you're decreasing the pool of people who might contact you, but you're increasing the likelihood that the ones that are most profitable will contact you. So, you know, quantity, technically the quantity of people who your message could speak to goes down, but the quality goes way up and the effectiveness goes way up. So, it, you know, in the marketing perspective, you kind of have to act in the aggregate. So you want to make that aggregate as small as possible in order to penetrate, to use the term. But then once you do have a conversation with a specific client, you can customize your proposal specifically for them so that you, you basically, I, I wouldn't say you do, do something different to your marketing. I'd say you go a level deeper and you say, okay, all the stuff I said, my marketing is true. But now that we've had a conversation, I can get even more specific about your exact scenario. Here's the opportunity you're trying to capture or the, the problem you're trying to remediate. And you know, this is the potential ROI for you. And here's my price, which is significantly lower than that. Here are a couple of other options that you can also pick if you like. But yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that's exactly true. You know, what, what Philip said. One thing I noticed that was, I found very interesting was that when I started emailing people about differentiating themselves, they would get back to me and they'd be like, well, I don't, I don't, there's nothing different about me or I don't know what's different about me. Can you tell me? And I, in my response was like, I could only tell you what's different, what's different about you. If I know who your competitors are, do you know who your competitors are? Oh. And the answer invariably was no. So step one and where you get started is figure out who your competitors are. And if you are just a commodity generalist web developer, your competitors are everything from Fiverr to Upwork to probably other people sitting in the same building you're sitting in. I mean, you're competing, you know, this is Philip's mantra, you know, stop competing with every developer on the planet. And, and about three to 4 million of them are, are self-employed just to give a sense of how impossible it would be to understand all your, your competitors. If, if that's the size uh, pool of, you know, competition we're talking about. It's, it's absurd. So probably the step one, we all know this is difficult is to, kind of pigeonhole yourself a little bit, niche down on a specialty or niche down on a target market and 
decrease that pool of three or four million self-employed people who do exactly what you do, you know, down to something that's a little bit more specific. Like, don't just be a, you know, to use another industry lawyer, be a divorce lawyer or a dog lawyer or something more specific. And once you've done that, then you could say, all right, I have an idea who my competitors are. Then the other thing you need to know is who your clients are, because you need to pick a meaningful difference between you and your known competitors. So a difference between you and the competitors that you've identified that your clients care about. If every time you get an opportunity comes into your email, somebody says, oh, we understand you do web development. Could you jump on a phone call with us? You're completely at a disadvantage because you don't know them. You don't know anything about their industry. You don't know anything about who else they're considering or not even apples to apples competitors, but complete other options like an off the shelf solution or doing it internally or just status quo, just doing nothing. You don't know any of that stuff. So you can't say anything smart unless you do what I recommend, which is talk them out of hiring you, in which case they will reveal all of those details. So to answer specifically Ruben's question, you need to know who your competitors are and you need to know who your ideal clients are. And once you know those two things, it's actually pretty straightforward to come up with something that's different about you because everybody actually is a unique snowflake. And there's probably something that matters to someone that's different about you than the 100,000 other things that they could choose. I've also seen this, the same sort of... Uh blindness, I guess, or this ignorance has a connotation of like stupidity. And I don't mean that just a lot of people are ignorant of the larger, you know, marketplace that they operate in. And it, I just want to emphasize that that's probably for good reasons, because if you're, you know, competing with every other freelancer, there's so many of them. How could you not be somewhat ignorant or unaware of what others are doing? So when you, that's one of the advantages that I probably don't talk about enough of narrowing down your focus is you, you start to operate in a much smaller market and you can start to understand what others are doing. You know, the, the level of knowledge that, you know, the typical freelancer has about their competition is much less than, you know, the typical sort of main street uh, brick and mortar store would have. They usually know exactly, you know, what the other clothing store down the street is up to. They're paying, you know, they're reading their, their flyers and looking at their sales and really studying their competition. I don't think we always have to do that as freelancers, but a sort of initial survey of your market can really teach you a lot about the message that others are putting out there and how you might stand, stand out from that. Yeah. People have occasionally asked me about my competition. And, you know, mostly in the consulting world, but I guess to some degree in the, the training world, I don't know. Like, like I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know that much about them, and I typically don't spend very much time thinking about them. But you're right. I probably should be, at least to some degree, figuring out what are they doing that I'm not and vice versa. Yeah. Well, Ruben, training is a great example. Like, do you ever get anybody, you probably don't, but just to put an example out there, do you ever get anybody that says, well, there's a course like this on Udemy or Fernand Masters. Why don't I just do that? Yeah, I do sometimes. I mean, um, I, I definitely get that. Well, I'm trying to think. Just recently, someone asked me about that. I think it was like someone who couldn't make it to one or two sessions of my course. And would that be a good way to make up for it? I said, well, like, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, it's certainly a, a good start. But I mean, my my big thing is 
that the real education comes from the interactions, and in my case, live interactions. So they're going to be missing out on that. But you get sort of you get what you pay for, and it's a good introduction without being as intense or as I think useful. But right, that's definitely I would say that's a sort of competition in the sense of I think it was a few yeah yeah a few years ago I was in uh, Romania teaching at HP. You know, it was supposed to be an advanced Python course, and as always, about half the people when they told when I went around the room and said, "Why are you here?" They said, "We've heard Python is a nice language to learn." <laughs> I can't tell you how many times this happens. This especially happens in China, but I guess like anyway. So the head of training there said to me, "Listen, don't make the course basic just because people need that, because we have videos online, and that's what we use for basic stuff. We only brought you here for the advanced things." So I think there's definitely some sense of. For the basic stuff, like the perception is for the basic stuff, they'd rather have at least some companies would rather use the online things. So I do have to understand that competition to some degree, but also I'm fortunate that there's enough work to go around, enough people who want either the live basics or the the advanced stuff that you know it's, it's not an issue. Yeah, I would also add that the concept of training, not necessarily developer training, but just the concept of training in general, is pretty well understood by a layman, and mm-hmm. that the benefits of of a video versus an, you know, an in-person expert are probably self-evident. It's just a question of whether or not they want to a large degree, I would say pretty self-evident and that the right kind of buyers are going to gravitate to what you offer because they value it. They value the in-person interaction more highly. When you get something like, Oh, we're going to rebrand your website. It's like, uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's like a very, it, it's order. I, I think a designer would argue that it's not intangible. I would say it's pretty close to intangible. It's certainly, it, it's not obvious to me how to measure the benefits or what the pains might be that someone would be, a client would be suffering if they wanted to, uh, if they were interested in a rebrand for us trying to sell a rebrand to them, you know, what, what pains are they suffering is it because they're not attracting partners or they're not attracting good job applicants or they're not getting donations. Like I think everybody who knows what design is probably say, Oh, it's inconsistent. Branding is bad. Just in general principle, like a, you know, a lumpy circle is not really a circle. It, like you get from an ideal perspective that bad branding is bad, but what's the value of branding and what pains do you experience when you have bad branding? And so I think that for a lot of freelancers, you know, especially you know, I can see designers, copywriters, videographers, illustrators, what's the, what's the value of like a beautiful book cover? It's very hard to articulate. It's very hard to say. But if you don't pick a target market, if you do pick a target market, you can start to get there. You can start to assign a value to that. So anyway kind of on a tangent, but I guess that I guess there's part of differentiation. I think it's impossible to differentiate without knowing who you're selling to because if you, because there's no way to know what's meaningful to that audience. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. All value. I mean, uh, you're saying this all the time, Jonathan, all value is, I mean, one way to I phrase it would be all value is subjective, but also all value is context dependent. Um, you know, like, uh, I think, this maybe is even from your email list, Jonathan, like a glass of water to someone in the desert is immensely valuable. <laughs> it's, you know, suffering from dehydration in the desert has a lot of value for them. But, uh, for someone in, uh, 
the middle of a monsoon, it's not quite so valuable. Or a glass <laughs> of water on your keyboard. Yep. It's the exact same thing. It just, the value depends on the context. Mm-hmm. And so part of uh, developing a compelling value proposition, uh, I'm speaking in marketing terms here, is just, you have to pick your context where you, you have to pick the field uh, that you're going to play on. And then once you do that, you start to understand the rules of the game and then you start to understand how to win. And it, it all depends on the field that you've chosen to play on. Mm. And I, I know we're, you know, this is topic number, number one of this show ever since I joined <laughs> it, since before I joined, I think. So here, here's something I can contribute. That's a little different. I actually wrote this email this morning to my list and put together a list of eight ways to add more value. And some of these could be also differentiators. So I'll just read through it real quick. Maybe it'll spur some ideas for us. So number one, complete the work or achieve the project goal faster. Uh, Number two, reduce risk for your client, not you. (laughs) Uh, Number three, be easier to work with. That's that's one that a lot of uh, freelancers kind of default to is we're easier to work with. And I think that does, for some clients, increase value. Number four, propose and build something that benefits their business more than what they originally thought was possible. Uh, Number five, provide better advice. Uh, Number six, say no to bad ideas that your client doesn't know are bad ideas or aren't willing to admit are bad ideas. Uh, Number seven, provide your client with additional resources that they need but don't have access to. Uh, Number eight, help them spend money more wisely. And I think if you can... If you can back it up with some kind of proof, all of those are potential ways to differentiate yourself from, from the competition. That's an interesting angle um, that, that I don't think we've discussed yet, which is how credible your claim is. Mm-hmm. So once you pick something that's unique about you, you know, so FedEx you know, absolutely positively has to be there overnight. They could have picked a billion things. There's an infinite number of things they could have chosen to differentiate themselves from the other services that existed at the time. But they were like, we are the dependable overnight service. And, you know, and they they didn't pick two things. They picked one thing to be different on. And it worked. And certainly comparing, you know, freelancers to FedEx is a stretch to be sure. But you do want to make some kind of claim. And it, it needs to be meaningful, which you already talked about, but it also needs to be credible. You can't just say you're the, I'm the best Python developer in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, it's just not credible. Yep. You know, so you need to, you need to have, you need to communicate that information about your unique difference in a way that is believable. So, you know, bold claims are great if you can back them up. It's not bragging if it's true. Yep. So, you know, if you can say, oh, well, you know, I've, I've been the keynote speaker at 25 conferences on performance optimization for websites. I'm a recognized expert in the field. I've written three books on it. You know, I've been interviewed on CNN about it. At, you know, okay, that's, these are all independently verifiable pieces of information. It's not just you saying, I'm awesome. So you're, you're kind of, the boldness of your claim needs to match up with what I usually refer to as your street cred. so that there's, there's some, you can back it up. Like the, the world at large will back up your claims somehow. So that, I mean, that's a key factor, but I think that's, that's probably a little bit more intermediate to advanced. You know, it's, it's something you need to consider starting out. You can't just say anything. Uh, you need to pick something that is true and you can back up. Yeah, I agree. The proof is, is critical. Although I will say that 
I think there's ways to kind of bootstrap yourself into having some proof, even if you have none, without doing a full project. You know, you can do stuff like interview people within the field, and that's not as good a form of proof as, you know, doing a project for a Fortune 500 company and having it go really well, but it's something. I wanted to tag onto that with, uh, I just realized I'd written another email to my list. Here's the stuff that everybody says that is a sort of first attempt at differentiating yourself that I think is pretty crappy. All right, here it goes. Our team is the best. How many websites have you seen that on? Oh, God. <laughs> we care. It's more. So meaningless. Yeah, it's worse than meaningless. When I see that, I think, why, why are they saying that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. How, how do they know it? And that's just like, that's, that's really nonsense. It means they don't know what's different about them. Yeah. Ah, okay, that's better. Yeah. This, this is, uh, there's a cognitive bias called illusory superiority where, you know, more than 50% of drivers say they're above average drivers. Um, <laughs> I think the same, you see the same people, people doing the same thing on their website. And I understand why it's like grasping at what is different about us. And it, so it's a first step. It's like a, it's a good sign. It's, a, but it's also kind of a cry for help. Um, <laughs> Jonathan, I think you kind of muttered the one I'm about to say, we care more. Uh, yeah, Maybe my... not verbatim, but that message is there. It's like, oh, we were going to take better care of you. Everybody says that. And I know. it just doesn't, it's not very believable if everybody's saying it and not everybody is following through on it. Our technology choices are better or like, you know, we choose better tech or we use better tools very similar to that we have a great process right that's another one that just everybody says our process is better few people can say we understand your business better like can credibly say that like if you're a previous insider to the industry you can almost automatically say that and that's why when i'm helping people with positioning I'm, one of the first questions is, okay, tell me about your existing contacts and your, in your work history, because those are going to be credibility boosters if you operate in the same you know, industry or field that you used to work in. Saying we've, you know, created this open source tool that you use every day. That's, that's an amazing, <laughs> that's an amazing differentiator. Mm. This is something I heard you say once, Jonathan, your developers have probably read my book and that's why you should hire me to do this training. <laughs> so that's another, yeah, I, I love that statement. I love that. Very strong differentiator. Yeah. What, well, so while we're going down lists, I've got 18 examples for people to sort of get their wheels turning and I won't go through all of them cause it's a long list, but we'll link to it in the show notes there. I have six categories of differentiators that people can think about like, Oh yeah. Oh, that one's perfect for me. So the six categories are predictable costs, risk mitigation, concierge service, vertical specialization, which you just talked about, urgent service, and shared worldview. Which one makes the most sense for you will vary widely based on, of course, you, but also the market that you're serving. You know, like uh, Fortune 50s might not really care about shared worldview as much as naturopathic doctors might. So it really depends on who you're targeting, but uh, I'll just give you a sample from each category. So predictable costs, you know, would be something I would say where I give fixed project prices in advance and probably no one else you're talking to uh, will give you an actual price. They're all giving you estimates. So I'm the predictable cost. Or you could say uh, I offer some sort of guarantee, which is risk mitigation. Or, you know, you could articulate it in many ways, but, you know, I offer a satisfaction guarantee, mitigates the client's risk, probably in a way that your competitors won't. Of course, you would want to know what your competitors do so that 
that this thing that you picked is unique. Concierge service, one example of that would be uh, I grant you 24-7 access to me directly, not to my employees, to me directly. So the CEO needs to talk to me at, you know, 2 a.m. on a Sunday. Here's the bat phone number. Uh, another one is vertical specialization, like um, Philip just said. I used to work full, as a full-time employee in your industry for, you know, 10 years, and now I do development, and you need a developer that understands your industry, so I'm the obvious choice. Uh, urgent service. I don't usually recommend this one, but a lot of developers aren't afraid of it the way I am. Uh, but you can basically advertise yourself as a fireman and say, or is it fire person these days? You say, like, I offer rush service for business critical events. I specialize in business critical events or I specialize in emergency response scenarios. So, you know, we'll, I have a team that will work around the clock when your bridge falls down, basically. And the last one's shared worldview where, you know, I believe that critical design decisions should be based on data, not opinions, that kind of thing. Or we believe that for every dollar you get, you should get back a dollar, whatever it is. You know, or we believe in eco-friendly solutions. That last one is a little bit soft depending on the market. If you are in a market that worldview is super important, like I said, naturopathic doctors or something like that, then shared worldview can make a big difference. But anyway, I wanted to, uh, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes to have people, um, you can go down the whole list and see, see if something resonates with you. Most people have sent this to, I usually can find one or two that feels like a good fit for them. And so do you use this sort of differentiator, like the sorts of phrases or descriptions you use now? Do you use them during the conversation with the client? Do you put them on your website? Like, like where do you use stuff. that? Yeah, websites okay. and proposals. And yeah, I suppose on the phone too. But I mean, hopefully at that point, they would have heard it already. But normally I would see these things on, on websites for the anonymous visitor. And then in the proposal for the not anonymous prospect who's potentially going to give you some money. This is so outside the world of freelancing. But there's a company called Ardent Global that uh, specializes in, in marine disaster response. So there are companies that, that have that differentiator of, you know, 24 seven, we're ready to put together a team and go, you know, rescue that ship that's leaking oil into the ocean. It's mm -hmm. just not very fun for a solo person to, to be in that position. Right. And, and the other pro problem with that is that people are not typically in emergency situations. So they need to be aware of you and remember you when the emergency happens. So uh -huh. it's a, it's a tricky, that's a tricky one because the opportunity, I mean, the value is it, the prices you can charge for it are astronomical, but if it's the kind of thing you, you need to have a lot of brand awareness in the marketplace for people to know, to call you in the situation. So it's a, you know, all of these have pros and cons. So you need to, you know, sort of like map, you know, like we said before, it's like you need to know who your ideal buyers are, your ideal clients are. You need to know who your competitors are in that market. You need to know what's meaningful to your clients and you need to know what's different about you uh, from your competitors. And, and, and maybe it is that everybody does, you know, nobody's willing to offer emergency service and I'm, I'm willing to do it for whatever reason. Um, single or I'm maybe you live in a time zone that's uh, 12 hours different than your target market. And so overnight service is really not a problem for you because that's your day. Right. 
but regardless, if, if you don't pick something, you're going to be differentiating on price because people will not, your, your prospects aren't going to know how else to compare. They're going to see apples and apples and they'll be like, I want the cheaper apples. And that's, that's really what commoditization is, is when your last best option is to say, well, I'll do it for cheaper. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's the thing that I think uh, we're all interested in the folks listening to the show being able to avoid is that, uh, is having to, I mean that, yeah, having to go there. Yeah. Haven't. Yeah. I would love it if everybody listening to this had a good answer for a client, you know, a prospect saying to them, well, you're the most expensive proposal we got. Why would we pick you? And like a good, solid, credible answer to that question that maybe not, maybe isn't going to resonate with every single prospect, but will resonate with some of them. And they'll be like, you know what? You're right. We should go with you. It is worth it. And then, you know, and you're going to turn away a lot of people and you're going to, but, but the ones that you're going to attract and the deals you're going to close are going to be ideal clients. I, I sent out a, I sent out an email yesterday that got a lot of people laughing about, um, you know, you don't dumpster dive for your dinner while you're dumpster diving for your clients. You don't just take any food that crosses in front of your pie hole. You're choosy. So why, why wouldn't you be choosy about your clients? If you're not choosy about your clients, it creates a vicious cycle of bad, unprofitable clients who don't see you as a partner. And therefore, you know, you keep living in this feast or famine cycle, you know, and if you, you've got to break it, it's not easy to break, but you know, using the things that we're talking about here, you can slowly claw your way out of that cycle into a virtuous cycle where 99.999% of the people on the planet would never hire you. And you make that abundantly clear in your marketing, but that 0.0001% that do hire you are highly profitable for both parties, you and them, uh, highly profitable engagements that have you doing your best work and creating your happiest customers and, you know, just advancing your business in a way that you probably can't even imagine right now. And it's a, you know, that's, that's the end goal. And it's a process to get there. But, and yeah, I guess we're right now trying to share ways to kind of claw your way in that direction. Well, one, one, one such way that uh, this is more like uh, of a sort of a fertilizer that you would apply to the soil, not, not like a seed you would plant in the soil. But, uh, you know, I know you share this viewpoint, Jonathan, and I do too. Uh, that it, you need to be passionate about something. And I, I hate that I even use that word because it's been taken over by HR departments who are just trying to find ways to convince young, mm. impressionable people to uh, overwork and have no no boundaries. But what I, what I mean by that is, you know, like what's, do you have a sense of a mission? Do you have some kind of impact you're trying to create when you work with a client beyond just successfully completing the goals of the project? And I think cultivating that can help create specific differentiators. So do you guys have any tips on finding your passion? Ah, that sounds so trite. sounds like some bad clickbait article, but yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about, but if you don't, I've started to, I don't know if I did it yet, but it's, if I haven't, it's on my to-do list to add a field on my intake form for coaching. Like, what are you passionate about? Because if you, if you don't have an answer to that question, I cannot, I, I don't know how to work with you because everything is an option. 
you know, it's, it's almost like, it's like a great way to, to help you pick a focus is be like, well, what do you care about? Mm-hmm. You, you're making up a job. You have all the freedom in the world to make up a job. So why not make up one that you just love and where better to look than your passions? It could be skiing or tennis or guitar, martial arts or anything. Like, why not go after that? There's got to be somebody in that industry who's making money that you could help. Probably, probably. Maybe there doesn't have to be, but there probably is. So what are you passionate about? What change do you want to make in the world? And yeah, this gets, this gets like super, uh, what's his name? Sinek, Simon Sinek. It gets like super trite pretty right. quickly. But if you have something like that, you know, you just really care about pet rescue or you really care about politics or whatever it is. It's, it helps dramatically with the follow through that it takes to, to do all the things that it takes to work on your business instead of in your business. So when you're not sure what to, you know, what should I send to my list or what, you know, what should I blog about or what should I talk about on the podcast or, you know, I'm going to, I'm thinking about writing a book. What, what should the topic be? If you have a crystallized, like the string in the sugar water, right? Like if you put that string in the sugar water, that string is like your mission. It's the, it's the, the point on the horizon that you're always working your way towards, you know, to use a hackneyed fortune 50, you know, it's your North, your North star. They still do that science experiment these days in school. I know you're homeschooled, no. but, uh, Wait, no, which, which, which one? Uh, Oh, good point. This is probably an analogy that's wasted on everyone or metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, you can create like super saturated water by boiling it and filling it with sugar. And then you dunk like a piece of twine in it and the crystals will form and it'll create rock candy on the thing. So anyway, it's like a really, <laughs> really you, you can tell who the old people are. No, I mean, I, I, I get that. Well, my grandfather, my grandfather was a dentist, so we didn't do that sort of thing, but I, I've seen it. Done. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of dentists like uh, ancestors on the freelancer show. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. Sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. The best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. Reuven, I, I know you have like a, uh, a level of interest in training that's backed up with a PhD. How did you, how, how did you get there to where that would be something you might describe as a passion? Right. So I, I was going to say, like, it's, I think a lot of it is trial and error. So first of all, I, um, I can imagine, Jonathan, when you talk to people about what their passion, if they're software people, they're going to say, I'm passionate about software, right? But that's not a real business interest. 
right? That's sort of a means to an end, and that's the technology they use. So, I mean, I was just doing lots of different things. And, you know, I was doing some development, some consulting, and some, you know, CTO-type architecture work, and some training. It was all just mixed together. And it was actually while, while on this show, as like while giving people advice, you really should specialize in something. I was like, you know, that's really good advice I'm giving. I should listen to it. Uh, <laughs> and and I started thinking about what are the different things that I do. And I also started, I think this is important for people to try also, if they have a chance, listen to the feedback you're getting from your clients. What are the things that you're doing that are making them the most excited that that's, they say to you, wow, we've got to do more of this. Like, we want to invite you back. And I found that, you know, my development work was, you know, people were happy with it, but they weren't over the moon happy with it. But like my training, they were over the moon happy with it. And so was I. I was like, wow, like if, if I can fill my schedule and they're happy and I'm happy and I don't have to get midnight calls about bugs in software that I wrote, what a huge win for everyone. But it, if I hadn't done a lot of trial and error, I don't think I ever would have gotten there. Now, the fact that over the years I've gotten increasingly comfortable, happy, excited about speaking in front of crowds and giving presentations just was like, you know, icing on top, you know, icing the cake there, because it meant that I could do this, you know, more or less every day, go out, talk to people, interact with them. I often say it's analogous to putting on a play. Like I'm basically doing a one man show every day. And so it's exciting just as some people get excited about acting and putting on a show and getting the character. I get excited about getting in front of people and showing them like the cool things of these programming languages. But it was not, like, if someone had said to me 20 years ago, you know what, you're going to be standing up in front of people every day and teaching. I'd be like, you gotta be kidding me. Like maybe on occasion, but certainly not every day. That's not, that's not, that's not what real programmers do, right? And so it, it's important, I think, also to remember that given a certain skill set, even a technical skill set, you still have a huge number of options of how to use those skills and a huge number of options of different businesses you can talk to about them. Yeah, I, I find myself often pushing people in the consulting direction when, you know, if, if somebody says, oh, I'm passionate about code, which I get a lot. I get that a lot. Well, I, I don't really, I'm just really into code. And it's almost, I, I'm usually trying to push people from being, from calling themselves a freelancer to calling themselves a consultant, which is a mind shift. It's not just, it's, it's not just, um, you know, a distinction without a difference. It's like a definite different mindset. But the other direction is, I, I think what you just said is, is, important because if you really are passionate about code you're just obsessed with code i'm thinking of one one student i have in particular where he you know we we went in a direction of like okay you know the the shortest path to the biggest profits is to be a consultant on this particular thing using the skills that you have to create a difference in their world and his like motivation there was a spark but i don't think it turned into it wasn't a fire and the real fire was the kind of craft of the of coding so the, the all the crafty pieces and and really probably a better audience for him would be his peers which i don't love as a target market but it's not impossible i just don't i, I think that it's a it's a tough one and it's a seductive one so i think a lot of people gravitate toward it without it's like an obvious move because they're already familiar with their peers and they already rate themselves against their peers and they may be feeling like they're getting a little bit stature with their peers and they're like, oh, I know, I'm going to start selling stuff to my peers. Like that's a, it, that is a very tough 
transition to make. It sounds like it won't be, but it is actually pretty tricky. Ruben, you did it wonderfully. It's a low hanging fruit, but it's, it's a, it's not the easiest business to build <laughs> to, to get, right. you know, substantial wins in. Yeah. And you see, I see people hitting home runs and I feel like that, you know, but it's more like that's, that reminds me a little bit more of like the old school music industry where, you know, somebody has a hit and therefore everybody wants to be, you know, it's like, oh, Madonna's got a, another huge hit. It's like, oh, I want to be like Madonna. It, it's like, well, okay. It's trickier than it looks. And so at any anyway, if somebody really is just passionate only about elegant code or progressive enhancement or responsive design or accessibility that it, and they were like bonkers over it and they really thought they were going to change the world that way, I would be like, you know what, you should probably go into training. It should be either info products or in-person training or some combination of those things, write a book and create a training business for your peers but you really need to be like a global expert, like a, like a for real global expert, top, top 10 globally, probably top five globally to me. I'm, I'm not convinced that's true. I'm not convinced that's true. Cause I mean, there are so many small companies and meeting companies, you, you sort of work your way up too, right? It could be that if you start doing info products and training that, you know, some things and not more than the people you're teaching, which is good enough. And then after, you know, two, three, five years, then you're in the realm of being a global expert who can really command higher prices and go to larger companies. Okay, that's fair. I mean, you're more experienced in that area, so that's good to hear. I mean, I just say that in part because I look back at, just, just recently I was shown a syllabus of, of what I had promised to teach. I'm going to China next week, and the company where I'm teaching sort of showed me the syllabus that I guess they thought I was still using. Oh, my God. I looked at this and said, who in their right minds, I mean, I didn't say it to them, who in their right minds would, would teach using the syllabus? This is nonsense. No one's cramming that much in, in a few days. But it was like good enough back then that they invited me back. So now, now I've learned. Cool. Good. Look, good. Having, I would say having that passion also means that you're going to be interested in learning more about it over time. And that's going to make you a deeper expert and a more authoritative expert and one to whom they'll never stop coming to you with questions about. Right, because like if you're really excited about here, let's just say you know accessible websites, which you're mentioning now, right? There, there's a huge need for that, and so if you go and you teach someone or you consult with someone, you help them with that top topic, they're not going to say, "Well, we've used up all their knowledge." They're going to know that you love this stuff and you're constantly reading blogs about it and thinking about it and posting about it, and they'll call you back when they have more problems. So you're you're setting yourself up for more work and for repeat business. Right. Yeah. You're, it's obvious that you're always on the cutting edge. Yeah. And I, you know, I think another thing about having a passion is that you'll actually genuinely want to help your clients and you'll drop bad ideas quicker. At some point you'll be willing to admit, oh, there is something more important than, you know, which JavaScript framework we use for this project. And I'm going to now try to find out what that is for my clients so that I can, you know, it, it just makes it easier to think in, in terms of their worldview and their perspective on things. And I think that makes you in the end, it makes you a better consultant because you're willing to, again, drop tools and methodologies that, that aren't really helping as much as, as they could. Maybe that's an obvious observation. I don't know, but, um, it, it's just, it's super important and there, there's just no magic bullet, but I think your advice, Jonathan is good to just sort of look at yourself as a person and start with that. 
try to identify those things that that you're passionate about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to to loop it back to today's topic, it's it's wherever you find that differentiation, it's important to find it because if you don't, then it's going to be price. I guess I'll just add to that that uh, there are things that can work for a while as a differentiator. So don't feel like you have to get to the ultimate differentiator first. You know, things like, well, you know, we follow best practices or we have these ways of reducing risk. Those can work for a while, but anything that can be automated or turned into a code library or a set of best practices that are easy to follow is not going to be a differentiator that lasts for very long because uh, that's that all that stuff is are the, the sort of attractors to commoditization that just kind of draw a skill set into commodity status. And so those things don't work for the long haul as differentiators. The stuff that does is unique to you and uh, that takes time to develop. So be patient with yourself. Excellent. Uh, Philip, you got any picks for us this week? This is going to sound so petty, but I just have been getting fed up with, uh, really with myself. And the expression of that was Evernote. <laughs> I've been using Evernote for years now and it's great, but they keep increasing the prices of their subscription. And for some reason, it, it's sort of like Evernote's an inert substance, but when it was combined with my personality, it became a kind of vehicle for information hoarding. And I just realized I had this growing collection of stuff in Evernote that I was doing absolutely nothing with except just adding to the collection. So I, this past weekend, I got kind of frustrated with that and decided, okay, no more. I'm breaking up with you, Evernote. And I had to find some sort of uh, replacement for the things that I legitimately do need to save that I was using Evernote for. And I found something that kind of works. So I wanted to share that as my pick. There is a Chrome browser extension called Save to Google Drive. And uh, it's a button and it will save whatever web page you're looking at as a, I think as a PNG in Google Drive, which is very helpful if you, you know, do the kind of work I do or any kind of work really where you need to save screenshots of web pages for future reference. And then I found another tool called ScanBot that works on the iPhone and uh, is a really nice document scanner that also does OCR and then, you know, saves to a PDF with a text layer on it so you can search it. And um, together, those two tools seem to have replaced the functionality that I really needed within Evernote and hopefully are going to help me combat my disease of, uh, my mental disease of information hoarding. And I think, I think they're going to work. So I'll, I'll post links to those tools and uh, also a Lifehacker article that provides some options for getting out of Evernote bill into some other note-taking form. That's my pick for this week, my somewhat lengthy pick. No, no, that's great. Great. Uh, Jonathan, do you got anything? Yes. I, I guess to pile on top of that, or perhaps even help Philip, I use Google Keep as an Evernote replacement. Might be worth looking into. It's pretty slick and it works on all platforms. Nice. And is utilitarian in the way that Google things usually are, but I actually like that. I consider it a feature. So folks might want to take a look at that. Also has OCR. Even uh, actually, geez, I, I wasn't going to pick this, but now that we're talking about it, I still like taking notes on paper and even with my horrible handwriting, when you take a picture, what I do is I, I fill out the notes, I write my notes and then I take a picture of them with my phone and it saves it to Google keep. 
and it even will do some OCR on my handwriting. So I don't have to tag everything. If I know I want something tagged in a particular way, I just write it really neatly on the page and it's just tagged. Like I can search for it later and it'll come up. So it's, it's really impressive. But anyway, so to kind of follow on with those recommendations, uh, what I was going to pick was the, uh, give people a link to the differentiation article that I have. It's uh, at expensiveproblem.com slash 1818. And it's 18 examples of differentiation where people can go and, and see the full list of um, ideas. So maybe it would click with you, you know, some sort of differenti differentiation that might click with you as a possibility. And my last pick is going to be probably around the time this gets released or thereabouts. It's going to be Thanksgiving in the U.S. And every year we have about 30 people and we therefore need to have free turkeys. So for 10, I think this will be the 11th year, I have set up a turkey derrick on a ladder with a pulley system that drops big old turkeys into four and a half gallons of boiling peanut oil to uh, cook them in about 35 to 40 minutes, depending on the weather. So uh, I'm a huge fan of cooking turkeys in peanut oil. If you have never had a turkey cooked in peanut oil, do yourself a favor and give it a try this year if it's not too late when this is released or next year if it is. Uh, and that's it for me. You know, people can have turkey not on Thanksgiving, too. <laughs> true. That is very true. And and you can use the oil the next day for the most delicious French fries ever. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so my pick, I might have picked this a long time ago, but it's been updated since then. So uh, it's this uh, app for Android phones called Clean Master. I cannot figure out where I heard about it or where I downloaded it from, but it basically gets rid of junk on your phone, um, especially my new phone, which I'm very happy with, um, or I think it's actually new versions of Android. You can't as easily move things to the SD card. So I find myself crunched for space a little more often than usual. My Clean Master is just great at that. My 13-year-old uh, actually had some problems with her phone because it was too full of stuff. I showed her to install it, and she, she just told me earlier today, oh, wow, this is the best thing ever because, like, you know, I run it every day or two and uh, it gets rid of all the junk. I think every day or two is probably a little obsessive, but she has more time than I do, so fine. Uh, in any event, so if you're running Android, uh, I would definitely recommend taking a look at Clean Master. Um, it's free. I can't figure out where they make money, although I guess there are ads in there somewhere. It shows you how much attention I pay to the screen when I'm running it. But anyway, I think that might be useful for people. This was a fun episode. Jonathan, Philip, thanks so much. And uh, thanks for joining us on the show, all of you listeners out there in podcast land. And we will talk to you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.